excited because we're kind of putting the exclamation point on a two-part series, uh, the first part of which Josh started last week. And it's a series called The 1014 Project, and it's a series on evangelism. And last week, Josh talked about the heart of evangelism. Evangelism is just sharing the good news of Jesus. He talked about the, the root word of that, the euangelion, and kind of broke into why is it that we share the good news of Jesus. And uh, he passed out Oikos cards. If you've got an Oikos card, um, I, I want to draw your attention to this. If you don't have one, I want to draw your attention as well so you can grab one on your way out. But this is where we write down the 8 to 15 folks in our lives, in our sphere of influence, who do not know Jesus. And we're praying for these folks. We're committing to praying for them that they would, um, they would be drawn to the heart of God and that we would have an opportunity to share Christ with them. And so whether that means initiating a conversation or inviting them to church. But I, I want to take the second part of this series and I want to talk uh, a little bit about the heart of evangelism, but I also want to talk about the how-to's of evangelism. And, and when we were planning this as a teaching team, originally Josh was not supposed to teach in this series. It was supposed to be Darren opening it up and me closing it. And every time Josh would share with the teaching team about his heart for this series, um, he would begin to get emotional. He'd cry. Sorry to put you on the spot, Josh. I don't know if this is normal or not for you, but I, we could all see his heart coming through for why he wanted this church, why he wanted this group of people to adopt a heart for people far from God. And so we were like, Josh, you've got to leave this thing off, man. You've got to talk about this. And that's what I love about this church. I love the fact that this church was founded with a heart for seeing people far from God come to know Christ. You can come in here, busted up, broken, messy, asking questions, searching, and seeking. And this is a place where you can invite your friends who are not perfect. In fact, we put it out there in the cafe that this is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And so often you go to churches and you feel like you have to clean yourself up before you step into the church, and this is not a place where that's the case, and that's what I love about the founding heart of Josh in this, and I believe that God wants to do a resurgence of that, to bring the heart of evangelism back into um, this church and continue to move it into an even greater space, and so I'm excited about capping this off. We're going to talk about some of the how-tos of it, um, but first I want to tell you where we uh, kind of got this title, the 1014 Project. This will set the stage for it. It's from Romans 1014. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I actually want you to turn to John chapter 21. That's where we're going to camp most of the time. But let me set the stage with Romans 10. We're going to start in verse 13. And this is what it says. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Mercy Road, that is good news in here today. Because it does not say everyone who has cleaned themselves up can be saved. It does not say everyone who is perfect, everyone who has not made a mistake can be saved. That's not what it says. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be and will be saved. And that's great news to celebrate in here, right? And then it goes on to give us the key to this. And this is what it says. It says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear, here's the key, without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When we talk about evangelism in Scripture, it seems that Scripture has this tone of urgency about it. And, and, and this is the heart of this church is that we really do believe that those who step into eternity... Without a relationship with Jesus, they step into an eternity apart from God. That at some point, when you push back from God all of your life, say, I don't want to have any part of your ways or any part of the, you, God, then God, God is a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on us. He's going he's to give us our desires. And unfortunately, that means that 
that friends and family of ours who don't know Christ will spend eternity separated from God. And scripture talks about this and we should have, there should be an urgency inside of us about this as followers of Jesus. I learned a little bit about urgency about 10 years ago when I ran my first marathon. Incidentally, it was my only marathon. Hello, right? First and only not doing it again. How many of you guys like to run? You enjoy running? No? Okay, right? Some people are crazy, just like to run for fun. We planned this entire thing. We decided to run a marathon out in San Diego, California. And we decided we're going to run this marathon, and then we're going to go and have vacation afterwards for a week where we just sit by the pool, eat whatever we want to, do whatever we want, not walk because we just ran a marathon, right? And so we, we, we met out with several folks out in San Diego, and it was myself, it was my late wife, Amanda, it was her sister, Amber, and then their brother, James, that ran it. Now, Amber's husband, Gavin, came with us. He didn't run, though. He was, like, stationed at all these posts, passing out, like, bagels and bananas and all this stuff while we were running. He just was not going to have any part of it. And so because of that, he became the designated driver for us. Don't worry. It was just because we were exhausted from running the marathon. While we were driving out from San Diego to Palm Desert, we were exhausted. We didn't think we were going to be able to last the two-hour drive. The girls were in the back of the car, and they were cashed out. They looked like they had just had been, you know, gotten their wisdom teeth taken out, and they're hopped up on Vicodin. They're like, you know, nodding on and off. I'm in the passenger seat nodding on and off. And, and the, an important detail in this is that I had never before rented a car up until this moment. I was 23 years old, and I had no idea that when you go on Expedia or Priceline and you choose the option of midsize SUV, what they mean by that is an SUV built for Oompa Loompas. <laughs> it was tiny. And so we didn't have enough room for all four of our luggage, because girls, you like to have options, you know what I'm saying? So we had enough room in the trunk for my luggage and Amanda's luggage. Gavin and Amber, there's no room. So Gavin and I, we're not very handy. Uh, try to think that we have some common sense. We went to Walmart, and we were, we've got the solution. We bought bungee cords to strap the luggage on top of the car. Of course, that would work, right? So here we are after running this marathon. I'm exhausted in the passenger seat. Gavin's a NASCAR fan. He's in the far left lane. We're driving the Audubon of California. It's a 10-lane interstate from San Diego out to Palm Desert. Gavin's in the far left lane, Jimmy Johnson style. And all of a sudden, as I'm not at all on and off, I hear, Chum! and I look in the rearview mirror and I go, Gavin, I think we just lost one of our, and before I could get bungee cords out of my mouth, we hear, all of the luggage that was on top of the car now was scattered throughout this 10-lane interstate. Gavin doesn't even look back in the rearview mirror, doesn't even look over to the... He cuts across five lanes of traffic, goes into the shoulder, kicks it in reverse, goes 80 miles an hour in reverse. I'm watching, like, light posts going by. I think a cow went by. I'm like, okay, this is how we die. This is how we die. He screeches to a halt. He jumps out, and he starts playing Frogger in this 10-lane traffic. And we were at a part where there was this crest where you couldn't see the traffic that was coming on. And so Gavin's back and forth trying to get all the luggage. And I'll never forget this Mack truck coming up over and obliterating one of the pieces of luggage. There's like tire marks all over their swimsuits. Gavin's running back and forth. And I'm over there because lactic acid had kicked in from running this marathon. I'm over there in the shoulder and I'm like, Gavin, <laughs> you let me know if you need me, bro. I'm going to hold the fort down right here. I'm good, right? At the end of the day, I didn't really care about the luggage. Why? Because it wasn't my luggage. Not my luggage, not my problem, right? But I'll be a cheerleader. You go, Gavin. You got this, bro. You go rescue that luggage. And I started thinking about it afterwards. And I was like, you know what? My attitude that day reflects a lot of our attitudes as Christians when it comes to seeing people far from God come to know Christ. In the church, oftentimes, we're over on the sidelines going, "Woo!" 
Man, that's so good, Josh. You just preached this amazing sermon. All these people came to know Christ. Woo! But oftentimes we take this approach in our hearts where it's like, not, not my problem. Gavin had a sense of urgency. I had a sense of apathy. My question to you is, when it comes to people in your life who are far from God, what's your attitude? Is it one of urgency that says, man, I don't know, I'm going to put myself in harm's way. I'm going to put myself in awkward situations. I'm going to get uncomfortable, and I'm going I'm to rescue people. I'm going to go after them. Or is it just kind of sitting on the sidelines and just cheerleading everybody else who's doing that? You see, because when Scripture talks about it, it talks about it in a sense of urgency. The very last thing that Jesus told his disciples, he gave them a commandment before he ascended into heaven. And he said, go and make disciples. Go into all the world. Preach the good news. Baptize them. Teach them. If you're putting down your last words to your kids before you leave this earth, you better believe those are some important words. They're urgent words. That's called the great commission is what Jesus gave us. But in the church, I found that we call it the great omission. And at best, the great suggestion. But Jesus communicates this out of a sense of urgency that says, hey, we've got to go and seek and save that which is lost. And in John chapter 21, we see the disciples have an encounter with Jesus that changes their perspective when it comes to people who are far from God. And I want to read this. It says in John chapter 21, starting in verse 1, it says this, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. Now, I need to stop right here for a second, because when it says Jesus revealed himself, what this means is after Jesus raised from the dead, he revealed himself to the disciples. So Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's already died for the sins of the world, purchased forgiveness for us. He's already been buried in the tomb, and then he gets up from the grave, and he shows himself to the disciples. This is actually the third time that he showed himself to the disciples. He'd done it twice already. And, and what's, what's crazy to me is that in this passage, we see after the disciples have already seen the resurrected Jesus, we see something happen. It says, he revealed himself in this way. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and, the two others, and two others of his disciples were together. We'll get back to all of those people who were, all the disciples, we're going to talk about them in a second. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they all said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. This blows my mind. Because here are the disciples who left everything. In fact, three years before this, Jesus came upon them fishing in a very similar scene. And he calls them away from fishing. He says, hey, drop your nets. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I want to change your purpose. I want to change everything about your direction and your orientation of your life. And I want to teach you how to reach people far from God. I want to teach you how to talk about the kingdom and usher the kingdom in with me. And he, he calls them away from fishing. And then they follow him for three years. They give up everything about their life. And then I can understand if this was between the cross and the empty tomb that they decide to go back to fish. But because they're, they're scared. After the cross, they're like, man, I don't know. They're, are they going to come after us again? Or like us too? Or like Jesus is dead now and they're totally disenfranchised. Their hopes are dashed. But this is after the resurrection. This is after Jesus reveals himself resurrected. And after seeing Jesus resurrected, the disciples are like, all right, cool. Y'all want to go fishing? What? I mean, 
Does this not compute to anybody else in here? This blows my mind. Does the resurrection not change something for the disciples here? Does it not infuse them with something else? You know, what's funny is this is, this is the attitude that I often see with us, and myself personally. Has the resurrection changed anything about my heart? I mean, think about this, guys. The fact that I used to be lost, I used to be far from God. You name it, you fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. I used to be addicted. I used to be broken. I used to be empty. I used to be, I used to be insecure. I used to be whatever. You fill in the blank. But Jesus changed my life. Purchased for me forgiveness. There's this thing that happened where all of my sin was erased. Everything I've ever done wrong, everything I will ever do wrong, wiped clean. Departed from me as far as the east is from the west. He holds it against me no more. Purchases forgiveness and then raises from the dead also making available freedom from sin. I don't have to be bound by that sin. I can walk in freedom from it. I can overcome that sin. No situation can hold me down. Wow, that's an amazing message. I'm going fishing. Isn't this what happens to us? We show up at church and we hear the message and we've experienced the power of God and then the very next day we're fishing. But not fishing for men. We're just going right back to our job. You see, in America today we have so many churched people, but I wonder if we have changed people. I wonder if the power of the resurrection has changed anything about us. And if we're going to understand how to do evangelism, the very first thing we have to understand is this one. You need to write this down. God's purposes for our life. God wants for people who are far from God to come to know Christ. It's a purpose that he has woven into this whole thing. He desires that for us. That's why he went back to reveal himself to the disciples, to say, hey, I I called you. I got something for you. Imagine if we all showed up to a funeral. We have a, a friend who's mutual. On a Friday night, Bob, he passed away. He's sitting in the casket, And in the fourth stanza of It Is Well, all of a sudden, Bob sits up out of the casket. Okay, aside from all of us urinating ourselves, right? (laughs) That would change me. I wouldn't go to work on Monday and be like, you know, um, I'm just going to kind of keep living things the way I'm living things. And, you know, if someone asked me if I was at the funeral, if someone kind of asked, they pressed in a little bit, if they pried, and, you know, maybe I'll kind of speak up and talk about how I saw Bob raised from the dead, and, you know, it's kind of a cool thing. But for now, I'm just going to, like, I'm just going to, like, live differently. I'm just going to, like, live. I'm just going to try to, like, and yet this is what we tend to do. Have you ever heard the old adage, share the gospel at all times when necessary, use words? You heard that? It's a really, it's a great phrase. In fact, I understand the heart and the intent behind this phrase. The heart and the intent behind this phrase is, hey, we should live out what we believe. That before we try to go and just like, you know, proclaim this to other people, we need to make sure we're living it. Because on the adverse side of things, the single greatest cause of atheism in this world today is people acknowledging Jesus with their lips but going about living a different lifestyle, right? But at the end of the day, people don't come to know Jesus until, listen to me, listen to me, we talk about it. We share Every one of us can look at our stories of how we came to know Christ and we can all identify someone or multiple people that shared the gospel with us 
at some point, whether it was a message from a stage or whether it was one-on-one from somebody at, in a workplace or in some other kind of situation. We can all identify there was someone who was willing to have a conversation with us about the gospel, the good news, and that's how we came to know Christ. It's the common denominator of every single one of us. And yet so often we don't open our mouths to talk about it. I want to talk about how-to. The first how-to is to understand God's purposes, that he wants for us to talk. He wants people to come to know Christ. In fact, the Bible says in first, or 2 Peter chapter 3, ironically, the, the guy Peter that was going back to fishing, he wrote this later, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. As some understand slowness, instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but look at this, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants people to come to know him. But the way that he's designed this to work in his purposes is that when we as Christians whose lives have been transformed by the resurrection, when we begin to talk about it, his power comes in and partners with us, and he does something transformational in somebody else's life. He calls us through his purposes, but he calls us to participate in his purposes. And you might be like, okay, Davey, I've heard, okay, evangelism, cool, it's awesome, I've heard so many messages, but what is it, what is, what benefit is it to me? to tell someone else about Christ. What benefit is it to me? Well, I believe that so many people get stuck in their relationship with Jesus. They grow stagnant for one single reason. There's multiple reasons why you can get stagnant, but I believe that there is a primary reason for many of us why you might feel stagnant in here, and that is that you're not active in sharing your faith. Because what happens is, is you show up in church and you start getting all this information, but it doesn't lead to application, which, which leads to transformation. And so you end up getting all this information bogged down inside of you. And there's a difference between a swamp or a bog and a river. A river has an inlet and an outlet. And a river produces and fosters life. A bog has an inlet but no outlet. And so things in a bog or a swamp fester and they die. And it smells. And there's so many Christians who are walking around where they've got so much intake but no outlet. And that's why you're feeling empty and hollow and purposeless. And God's inviting you today to say, hey, step into my purposes. Become a river. Become a conduit. Because I want to use you in powerful ways to see transformation in other people's lives. You see, what may need to happen is that we need to stop just eating and start exercising it out to boot up the spiritual metabolism of us. We're becoming obese Christians by just sitting in church and we're not actually changed and so we're not actually sharing the Bible with other people, sharing the good news with other people. God's purposes, we have to recognize God wants this to happen, not just for other people, but for you. It's transformative for you. The second thing we have to recognize is God's power. God's power. If you're taking notes, you can write down God's power. I saw everybody just kind of look at me and you just kind of write, write down, right? God's power. There you go. God's power. Look at what happens in John chapter 21. It says, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Look, when you're not operating in God's purposes, you can't recognize God's work. They didn't recognize Jesus right there because they're out fishing. And it says, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, okay, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This is an exact replication of the first time that Jesus called them. 
They couldn't catch any fish, and so he told them to cast it over on the other side. Why? Because they were trying to operate this thing in their own power, under their own agenda. The reason evangelism can be so intimidating for us is because we're trying to operate it under our own power, with our own agenda, in our own words. We have to recognize the power of evangelism is God's power in and through us. There is a powerful thing that is at play when we begin to when we begin to access the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. You see, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the word is ruach. Say ruach. Ruach. It's a creative spirit. It's what God breathed into Adam when he fashioned him out of dust to bring life into him. The same word is translated in the New Testament, pneuma. It's the Greek, and it's the same thing that Jesus breathed into the disciples to give them the empowerment to go and share the gospel with people. He said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. I'm giving you power to step into transformational moments by that spirit. God's spirit is a powerful thing. Friend, God has put his spirit inside of you. It's a powerful thing. And then he's equipped us with not just his spirit, but also his word. The logos. Say logos. The, the word of God, the logos, is living and active. It cuts into every situation. It can be applied to every single circumstance. And it's the thing that convicts. It's the thing that draws people. Salvation is a mystery, friends. We cannot control it. We cannot contain it. We cannot manipulate it. We cannot put it in a box. God's spirit does something powerful to draw people. And yet he calls, calls us to activate the spirit inside of us and preach the word, the logos. And when his pneuma and his logos mix together, power. Powerful things happen. The natural inside of us partners with the super that God brings in, and supernatural things happen. We can't do this by ourselves. Listen to me, it will always be awkward to share your faith. It will always be terrifying. The fact that it's terrifying is not an indicator that you shouldn't share your faith. It's an indicator that there is an opposing force that does not want you to share your faith because they know that if you share your faith, then that person's going to get rescued up out of the clutches of the enemy that God's power will begin to happen inside of their life. So So listen, the first thing you can do, the first thing you can do, first step for evangelism, pray. Pray. Wait, that's it, Davey? Like, pray? (laughs) Okay, like, what next? What should I do, right? I'm action-oriented. What should I do? Pray. You see, prayer is like, like one hour of work is equal to like a, like, or one hour of prayer is equal to a thousand hours of work. God does something so powerful when you begin to pray for the people who are far from God in your life. What it does is it begins to draw them, and it begins to open your eyes up to opportunities for you to share the gospel with them. See, the opportunities are there, but when you pray for them, your heart begins to get connected to them, and you grow more compassionate for them. And so, so many of us are trying to operate by throwing our nets on one side of the boat, and Jesus is like, throw it on the other side of the boat. Operate in God's power, not in your own strength. So God's power. The third thing is this, and this is where it gets really fun and really practical, okay? The third thing is your personality. Your personality. I love the next verse right here in verse 7. Because it shows us a little bit of the disciples' personalities. It says, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, first of all, does anybody know who is often referenced as the disciple whom Jesus loved? John. What book are we reading from right now? John. Interesting that John refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. Humble much, John, you know? 
And that disciple whom Jesus loves said to, says to Peter, now watch this, Peter's personality comes out. He says to Peter, it's, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. I don't understand that. He was already stripped to dive in and put something, I don't get it. But, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat. They're like, oh, there's Peter again, just kind of jumping without a parachute, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. I love this part because it shows us that these disciples were not some mega Christians. They were not these, like, I think oftentimes we think they were these machine evangelists, that they all had the same type of personality that God calls these certain types of personalities to go and be evangelists. God gives us the spiritual gift of evangelism, friends, that some people have the spiritual gift of evangelism. I have a friend, he can get up on the intercom at Walmart, and he can say whatever he wants to, and like hundreds of people would come to know Christ at Walmart. He's got the gift of evangelism. But even though we may not have the gift of evangelism, we all have the call to evangelize. And listen to me, evangelism is just sharing the gospel through your personality. You see, we think these disciples, all 12 of them, 12 of them sometimes had the same personality. They get, like to get up, they like to talk, they're extroverted, they're really boisterous. They weren't. They were totally different personalities. Peter, for instance. Peter was this impetuous, like shifty kind of person. You couldn't pin him down. He was spontaneous. He loved to just jump. He, he was called Simon, which means shifty first. And so it just identified who he was. He was kind of like the entrepreneur that had a lot of initiative, but not a whole lot of follow through. He had a, a, a foot shaped mouth, if you know what I'm talking about. He would speak and then be like, oh, can I, can I rewind that, right? He often jumped without the parachute. He'd like jump and then see if the parachute. He was this really impetuous person. That was Peter. Well, then you have the next person that was mentioned here, Thomas. Thomas was cynical. He was skeptical. He was a doubter. He was kind of that friend that you have that's like, I don't know about that. Ah, he was very pessimistic. He was very, like, worst-case scenario type thinker. At one point, Jesus was like, hey, let's go raise Lazarus from the dead. But they knew they were going through a hostile territory. And Thomas, worst-case scenario, was like, okay, fine. We'll go through that hostile territory and die with you, Jesus. He was very loyal. He... He, at the same time, was probably struggling with the same fear that we have when it comes to, you know what, that person, I don't know if they would ever come to know Christ. The next person who was mentioned here is Nathaniel. Nathaniel was like this tinkerer, this like engineer, this person who was very introverted. He didn't like to talk much, but he liked to break things, take it apart, put it back together. He probably got his undergrad degree at Purdue, you know what I'm saying? Like he just, he just was, he, and, and this is what, he, he didn't want to step into anything unless he knew everything about it. He studied God's word like crazy, and so he probably wrestled with this fear of like, man, I can't tell somebody about Jesus because I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to say. I'm not an expert at this yet, so i got to step back and become an expert before I can share. Come on, is this starting to resonate with some of us? The other two people who were mentioned, James and John, they were the sons of thunder. They were the sons of Zebedee. They were sons of this really, um, this really successful businessman who had this fish, fishing business. And, and James was like this highly competitive type person. He literally made a sport of everything. At one point, Jesus goes, hey, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be resurrected. And James kind of like digests it for a second, and then he goes, hey, when that happens, Jesus, who's going to be first, me or him? Highly competitive, always wanted to be first, 
always trying to achieve, always trying to build, always trying to create some kind of status for him. John, his brother, was a very judgmental person. He had like like this black and white moral ethic about him, and so it caused him to be a perfectionist when he looked at other people. He would call out their imperfections, but he was also insecure about his own imperfections. Come on, this is starting to resonate with some people. We've got, we've got the two other disciples that were mentioned. I don't know who they were, but maybe they were Andrew. And Andrew's more of an introverted, behind-the-scenes kind of guy, nurturer, relational. He wanted to make sure that I don't want to be up front. I don't want to, I want to be behind the scenes. I want to talk to people. I want to just kind of like, let just, I want to make an impact, but not, not up front. Maybe it was Philip who was the counter, who was really systems-oriented, process-oriented. He didn't want to do anything until he knew exactly how it was going to be done. Maybe it was Matthew. Matthew was like, I'm just so glad to be here. <laughs> I was like the down and out. I was the tax collector. I'm not, I don't have no education. I don't know anything. I'm just glad to be on the team. The point is, is every one of the disciples had different personalities. And God called them with their unique personality so that he could send them to the areas of the world with unique personalities. Our God is a multifaceted personality God, and we have access to Him. Multiple personalities have access to Him to relate to Him in their own personality. How? Because we have different personalities sitting in this room to reach those people. I'll reach people that you can't, but you'll reach people that I can't. And it's purposeful. Can I just be honest? What I tend to do is I tend to use my personality as an excuse for why I can't do something or why I behave a certain way. And I love personality profilings and typings and Enneagram, Myers-Briggs and all that stuff, but your personality is not meant to be, your personality profiling is not supposed to be an excuse. It's meant to be an explanation that God uses for transformation to become a light to other people with that personality. These disciples were so different. And then, finally, the last thing we've got to understand is the project. The project. Um, when we talk about this idea of the 1014 project, it can be very tempting to think that the project we're talking about is the person in your life who doesn't know Jesus. That person is not a project. It can be very easy to slip into thinking that they're projects. Like, okay, well, you know, I've got I've to go in. I've got to share my faith and kind of write their name on the wall and check it off when it, when it happens. And, I can tell you, I can assure you, they, they don't want to be considered a project. They can feel it if you, if you think them as a project. The project we're talking about, friends, is, is you, Christian, and me. We are the project. What God is doing in us to shape us to know how to evangelize, how to share our faith, how to step into situations and discern the right timing for that. And it's been awkward throughout history on how we've shared our faith. Can we just get honest for a second? I mean, you ever seen that like $100 bill track that people will give to like waiters or waitresses, you know? It like looks like a $100 tip and they open it up and it says, disappointed, you wouldn't be if you knew Jesus. Like what? How does that, how does that show the love of Christ to anybody? You know, waiters and waitresses actually say the worst time, the time they hate the most of working is Sunday afternoons when the church crowd is there because they're usually complaining about their food and they don't tip very well. You want to make an impact in someone's life? Leave a real $100 bill. 
Write a little note. Hey, I love you. Thanks so much for the service. Maybe an invite card. You see, we just get really awkward with this sometimes, and it doesn't have to be awkward. I don't know if it's because we try so hard or what it is, but we've got like God's gym t-shirts, you know? With like Jesus with the cross on the back, and he's like doing push-ups instead of gold's gems. Like, what, what is that? Like, how is that meant? Or, or spirit in the Sprite logo, you know? And we try to get into these like conversations with people and we're like, oh, Josh, I see you have a new pair of shoes. Your shoe has a sole. You know what else has a sole? Like, it just, it doesn't have to be that awkward. Let me tell you, write these four things down, four steps. You ready? We're going to hit these quick. First step, get better. Get better. What I don't mean is I don't mean get better at evangelizing. I mean at whatever you're doing, your craft, your profession, your sports team, your schoolwork, whatever it is, just get better. For whatever reason, we live in a culture that is drawn to excellence. When we do our very best at whatever we're doing, the world turns their head. That's why you love coming to Mercy Road. There is a heart and a spirit of excellence that Josh has infused into this. Excellence honors God and inspires people. When we just do whatever we do really, really well, people are drawn, they, there's an attention that's drawn to that. And we're doing it not to impress other people, we're doing it for God, we're doing it to please Him. We just get better. That means we like show up to work, listen to me friends, show up to work and actually work hard. Don't spend half the time on Facebook or on social media or whatever. Like, in the time you're at work, work. Do your very best. Come to your boss and say, hey, what can I do? What more can I do? How can I push this mission forward? How can I? You want to draw attention to some different type of lifestyle? The apostles in Acts, everybody was drawn to them because everywhere they went, they raised the level of excellence everywhere. They were like, what is going on here? Just get better. Do your very best. The second thing is add value. Add value. Just in whatever relationship you have, recognize that God builds his kingdom relationally. And when we are genuinely interested in people, when we genuinely are concerned for people, when we ask them questions about themselves rather than talking about ourselves the whole time, when we're trying to be interested rather than interesting, when we don't try to win every argument, because you can win the argument or you, you can win the heart, and you're not going to change their mind or turn their head unless you change their heart. Just add value. Everywhere, try to serve. Figure out ways that you can bring coffee to people or that you can, this starts to tear down the walls and it builds trust. When you get better at what you're doing and you add value wherever you are, it builds trust and people begin to look and go, what is different about you? Hey friends, adding value means we've got to smile. Smile! So many Christians are walking around and they're like, yeah, the joy of Jesus, and it's transformed my heart. I'm like, well, did your face get the message? Doesn't mean we walk around with a smile plastered like fake or anything like that. No, no, no. It just means let's, let's operate in the joy of Jesus. Add value. The next thing is be real. Be authentic. Be genuine. Be real. You don't have to put on something that you're not. In fact, when you struggle and as you struggle because you're not perfect, help people tell like, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm a fellow struggler in this whole thing. Evangelism is just one beggar helping another beggar find bread. That's it. I don't have this all figured out, but this is something that, that I'm working on. And I'm just going to, in a real way, authentically live out my faith, try to follow Jesus the best that I can. I'm going to stumble along, and I'm going to own up to my mistakes when I do. There's something powerful about that. 
And then when you go through a struggle, friends, people's heads will snap and their attention will be on you when the fight breaks out in your life. It's like middle school. When the fight breaks out in the hall, it's like whoo, everybody's watching. And your pain can become this incredible platform as you live it out loud in a very real and authentic way. And then when someone else in your life goes through something, something tough, they'll remember how you walked out your faith and they'll come to you and say, how do I do it? Bam, golden opportunity for you to share. And then the last thing is this, speak up. Speak up. At some point, you have to cross the threshold. These first three, you're all investing, and at some point, you have to initiate a conversation, and you have to give reason for the hope that you profess. And this can be the most intimidating and scary part, and I promise you, listen, I'll say it again, it will always feel intimidating. If you have a heart for that other person, it's always gonna feel intimidating. But something happens when you, when you trust in the power of God and you discern the timing of that moment and you speak up. And the best way for you to speak up is just to share your story. In John chapter nine, there's a story of a blind man. He was born blind and Jesus healed him. And it's really cool how Jesus healed him <clears throat> because Jesus put mud, you know, spit in the dirt, made mud, put mud in his eyes, told him to go wash, he comes back, Jesus is gone. But what's in Jesus' Jesus's place is all these Pharisees, and they're asking him and interrogating him in questions and saying, who was this guy that healed you? Who was this guy? Who was this guy? And all the guy says, he goes, I don't know. I don't have all the answers for you. But here's what I do know. I was blind. Now I see. There is something so powerful about being so simple with the way you share your faith. I don't have all the answers. I can't, like... Talk about everything from an apologetic standpoint. I can't argue with you. In fact, if you try to argue, you will often lose the heart. But here's what I can tell you. I was blind, and now I see. This is my story. And it's the most unintimidating, unobtrusive way for you to share your faith. Now, <clears throat> the last part of this passage in John 21, something powerful happens, and this is how we're going to close. It says in verse 9, when, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Did you, did you notice this? They went fishing, they went looking for fish, and Jesus had what they were looking for all the time on the shore. If, you, if you're here today, and you're feeling empty, and you're looking for something, you're searching, you've been going fishing, trying to find it everywhere, I need you to know just this one simple truth, Jesus has what you're looking for. He's already got it. Trust in him, believe in him. It says, then Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Why did he ask him to bring it? Because he wants us to participate in the thing. It says, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Watch this, 153 of them. It's interesting that in scripture there's always numbers. There's an entire book called Numbers. Why? God counts. You know why God counts? Because people count. What I mean by that is people matter. And that's why we count. Josh got up last week and he was like, this many people met Jesus at our, at our eight-year eight anniversary, our eight-year birthday bash. Isn't that awesome? Everybody cheered, right? Why do we count? Because people count. Every number has a name. Every name has a story. Every story matters to God. And so they brought 153 fish. But there's actually a reason why they, brought, why they had that number 153 in there and why they counted because this particular place where they were fishing, you can go to it and visit in Israel, it's called Peter's Primacy. And everybody wanted to fish there. 
because there was a hot spring that came down and fed into this area, which mixed the cold water and the warm water, which draw, drew all the fish to that area. So all the fishermen wanted to come and fish there. So um, because of that, the people of the day, they would tax the fish that you would catch. And so the fishermen didn't want to cut into their profits, so they would count how many fish they had because they wanted to know how much tax they were going to have to pay. And what they would do is they would take the fish and they would separate out the bad fish and the good fish. Bad fish, good fish. Bad fish, good fish. Bad fish, good fish. To make sure they had good fish that they could end up selling and it wasn't going to cut into their profits. They get to shore. Jesus and Peter have this conversation. It's a powerful conversation. Jesus asks him one question three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? I have to imagine that this is an allusion back to the fact that Peter denied him three times. And so Jesus is kind of acknowledging, hey, I know you had denied me three times. I'm going to ask this question three times. And every time Jesus asks the question, Peter responds with, man, I, yeah, I do love you. And he probably feels the remorse and the guilt. And he probably has this feeling like, man, I've got to get this thing cleaned up before I can ever be sent out. I've got to get my life all fixed up before I can ever share about Christ. And I'm so, yeah, Jesus, I, I do love you. But Jesus responds with something so amazing. Every time he says, okay, feed my sheep. Wait, what? He's talking to a fisherman. Up to this moment, all he's done is fisherman language. Hey, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And then he, sh he shifts things. He completely flips the script, and he uses shepherding language. Feed my sheep. Why? Well, I think he does something in Peter right there that God wants to do in each one of us because a fisherman is transactional with counting fish. This judgmental fisherman who would prejudge this one's bad, this one's good, this one's bad, this one's good, this one's too far gone, this one maybe has a chance, this one's too far gone. He shifted that judgmental fisherman's heart to a shepherd from a catch and release mentality to a no man left behind mentality. A shepherd is one that will leave the 99 and go after the one. A shepherd is one who will go in the face of danger and will rescue the sheep. A shepherd is one who will not worry about their own awkwardness or their own safety. He's going after the one. Friends, this is our story. Jesus, the good shepherd, came after us and he wants us to have the heart of someone who would go after the one in our life. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask us to stand and bow our heads and close our eyes. We're gonna close with this song. And I'm gonna ask that we do something a little bit different. This song is about that kind of a heart, the heart of a shepherd who would go after the one. It reminds us of our story. And, and we, every week we ask you to come forward if you need prayer, but I think sometimes people think that it's really only bad people that need prayer. Can I tell you something? All people need prayer. And I want to actually invite you to take this opportunity as a moment to, to pray in an, intercess, in an intercessory sort of way for the people who God is putting on your heart. I'm going to invite you to come forward. I'm going to invite you to come to the prayer room. I'm going to invite you to make this space a time where you can, during this song, you can begin to pray for those in your life who are far from God. Jesus, would you do something so powerful inside of our hearts right now? Just as you did for Peter right there when you, when you shifted things for him and you took Simon Shifty and you made him a rock and you empowered him despite his mistakes, despite his flaws, 
you, you, you changed his personality liabilities and made them assets and you, you infused in him your, your power and your spirit so that he could go and he could, he could transform the world by sharing the gospel. God, would you do the same thing in our hearts? God, would you reach down into the depths of our heart that we would be passionate and compassionate for people who don't know you. God, as we do business with you right now, as we come to you and we bring these people in front of you, God, would you meet us here? We give you praise. We give you honor. In your name, amen.